the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. A warm welcome to you. Yes, Country Hour today we'll hear about a major cattle fraud that has been revealed in an internal investigation for one of the biggest agribusiness companies in Australia. The journalist that has been putting the work there is going to tell you exactly what's going on and what it means. What's alleged to have been occurred here? Let's find out all of that together. Plus, we can't get the Agriculture Minister to come on and talk to you yet, but the grains industry has been meeting with her in Victoria. What have they been discussing? What is the key in terms of priorities for grains growers in Victoria? We'll find out that together as well. Plenty coming up. Let's talk about a possible fraud of cattle pedigrees now. These cattle exported from Australia to one of our largest trading partners and a trading partner we haven't had the best relationship with in previous years. In rural uh, press this week, it's been alleged elders' employees forged pedigree certificates for thousands of live animal exports uh, after uh, the details of a confidential forensic investigation were revealed. The reporter who has been revealing a lot of this work is Ed Gannon at Farm Online. He can join you on the program now. Ed, welcome back to the Country Hour. What can you tell us in terms of this case? What's going on here? Oh, g'day, Warwick. This is um, back in 2013. It was actually uh, two, two things happened at Elders at the time. There was some suspicion over some financial way that the, um, the accounting was being done. And so there was an invest- internal investigation. Um, it's sort of around about October 2013, looked into it and they found some discrepancies. So, so they decided to launch an investigation in that. At the same time, it appears that while doing that, they come across some other um, evidence and emails that, that indicated that there may have been some alleged uh, manipulation of pedigree certificates for um, live export animals. So, which I'll, I'll get to the sort of the details of that a bit in a in a minute. So, what what happened? The so we, the the financial discrepancies. Um, the elders announced that. that They've come across these issues, and so they announced that to the ASX, and they were going to have an investigation. So they engaged an external auditor, but also at the same time, the external auditor was engaged to look at this certificate uh, pedigree certification issue. Um, but that was never revealed. Um, and a report there was two reports presented to elders in February two thousand and fourteen: one on the the financial issues, and one on the the, the pedigree certificates issue. And it's the that that uh, report that the Details of that have, has now come out um, yesterday um, about the live export pedigree certificate issues, and also to um, the today the um, the issues in relation to the financial discrepancies of, of why and how that occurred. So there there are two separate things happened. One was known about back in 2013; it was announced by elders. The other one was not known about, not announced by elders, but it's it's come out now. Why? Didn't elders ever disclose the the discrepancies, particularly on the livestock pedigrees? I, I don't know. I, I've, I've naturally I've asked elders that, but um, they um, responded and said, "Look, it's a, it's a decade decade old inquiry, so that they're uh, they're not don't want to um, uh, they're not weren't going to respond." So I don't have any answer to that, and I can't speculate as to, to why that would would be the case when when one has been announced and not the other. What's your knowledge about how the pedigree fraud worked? Can you explain that? Yeah, so basically, when exporting these are so these are pedigree animals. So this is this is not a, a boatloads of 
sheep and um, cattle from Northern Australia, or there was some Northern Australia cattle involved, but it's not it's not those ones that are heading for um, live export for slaughter overseas. These are breeding animals. So they so um, the customers, and it's mainly China, have said, look, if we're taking breeding animals, we need to know that they are up to scratch. So we need pedigree certificates for them, and usually that involved the animal um, having recorded. Um, three generations of sires and dams for each of those animals. So, so that was um, in that case. It's alleged that some of Elder's employees were actually changing certificates to input that data. There was also to allege that they were um, stamping some certificates with um, breed society stamps, which they had um, to give the appearance that the breed societies were had approved it and also to um, giving information to other breed societies and saying here's all the the, the pedigrees and the um, breed societies were then approving it so there's a number of different ways to do it but it all revolved around this need to have these pedigree certificates and also too with these pedigree certificates if you did do that you got a re- a tax benefit or a rebate benefit when you exported to china so and there was some talk of there that needed to be done in a certain a timely manner um, I think it was about 10 days once the uh, animal's gone to quarantine, you needed to get the certificates to the, the Chinese Ministry of Agriculture. So um, I think the, uh, there was a view that the, perhaps some of those were expedited in a way that perhaps shouldn't have been done that way. So essentially, elders, the, the live export arm of elders were saying it was exporting these stud animals with pedigrees and, a, and it's alleged a lot of these pedigrees were simply made up. Yeah, so allegedly the, the certificates for it were um, altered and manipulated to provide the pedigree certificates to satisfy the customer that they were what they were, um, what they were what they were buying. And there are a lot of emails quoted in your story describing some of the behaviour here. What did they say? Well, there's various ones um, asking about, um, you know, we're going to do this action. There is one. Um, they're in relation to um, export of breeder bulls to Indonesia. There's one elders manager and he emailed uh, uh, another senior elders manager. And now, of course, this is what the, uh, in, in the investigation has detailed. Um, he has said to the other managers, and I quote, just letting you know I'm going to forge 120 documents, close quote. So there was no, that, that sort of detail was um was in the investigation talks about um, uh, another manager inserting a signature from a from another company, uh, shipping company representative into um, a couple of um, contracts to show to uh, a bank, uh, and then the, that that shipping company um, employee saw that his signature was on it and said, "Where did that come from?" And then uh, so they sort of went backwards and someone said, "I just sort of pulled it from a list and put it on there." So there's a few few things in there. There's another a case where they've um, the investigators come across a file um, and it was titled fake um, in a, a pedigree certificate, certificate file um, and that was for cattle to China and um, there was 1,089 certificates in that folder and then they went back and looked at it and found that those certificates were identical to the ones um, that were sent in another file, pedigrees sent to the MOA, the Ministry of Agriculture, approval. So they said their conclusion was that they were the, they, they were the same ones. So, so there's that that sort of level of um, of, of detail in the investigation that there's this um, external audit uncovered. How many elders employees are implicated in this, and was anybody ever sanctioned? Well, the the, the investigation names eleven uh, employees. Now I say employees, so that, uh, um, 
whether former employees, employees, um, I'm understanding that they're probably with former employees now, um, and one contractor. Um, and from what I can ascertain, um, it doesn't appear to be any um, sanctions recorded. There's um, certainly no record of any um, uh, notification of any external um, agencies being contacted. And of course, these are questions I've asked Altus as well, so um, which I, I didn't uh, uh, get answers to, um, because that was obviously the one that I wanted to know is, is did, did anything happen um, in, in these cases? So, um, but so my, my answer to that is I don't know, but I've uh, I've tried to find out. And in terms of talking about how big. Uh, this th- these allegations are. How many cattle or how many shipments are we talking about where it's believed some pedigrees were um, altered? Well, we're, we're looking at at least in relation to the ones that they've sort of outlined, it's probably four and a, four and a half thousand um, certificates, so that's four and a half thousand cattle uh, or sheep um, at least, uh, plus others. Now, shipment, some shipments had a thousand animals on it um, of a shipment of, say, 3,000, and 1,000 of those were alleged to be um, certificates for those alleged to be manipulated. Some of it was only, you know, there might have been 10 on that shipment. So the, the number of shipments is unknown. They, there is a, identified a number of shipments, but they don't know the whole, the, the total number. Now, the other issue to, to remember, this is 10 years ago, so these um, animals have um, gone to China as breeding animals based on their pedigree. They've bred presumably a number of times um, and their uh, their offspring is bred a number of times so it the implication is that there may be thousands and thousands and thousands of um, of cattle and sheep in China that, that have emerged from these ones there so and, and we just don't know this is a trading relationship Australia with China which has been fraught with difficulty over the last number of years as well and I can't imagine this adds to the trust between the nations. No, I can't imagine. And obviously, I've asked a question of, of China, and I'm, I'm still waiting on a response from that. Um, but that's obviously a question to say, well, you know, the, the, what, what, what do they make of um, these, these sorts of revelations? Ed Gannon, thank you very much for your time today on The Country. Thanks, Warwick. Ed Gannon there from Farm Online talking about the issue of live export pedigrees and the fact that some of them may have been forged uh, in a 10-year-old uh, investigation internally at Elders. Brian at Venice Bay says, sell them meat, yes, but why would you sell them your hard-fought pedigree? Absolute lunacy. Who comes up with this rubbish, says Brian. Uh, well, Brian, exporting dairy heifers was a very lucrative industry for some time to China, um, less so now, and it has been done with, with breeding beef animals and sheep animals in the past, um, but, yeah, uh, not as big these days anyway. 1300 uh, if you'd like to have a chat. And thank you to the listener who does say there is a warning. There is a fire in the Buanga State Park. Smoke's heading to the Western Highway. We did that Watch and Act message at the start of the program. It's still current uh, for that fire for Bay and Dean, Buanga, Glen Logie, Middle Creek, Mount Cole, Mount Lonark and Raglan. And a great listener said, because when I said it's on Rocky Road at Warrack, they said, no, it's pronounced like your name, Warwick. So it's Warwick. That's not yet under control. And how do I not know it's pronounced like that? That's a great town name. Uh, so there you go. Be warned. That fire is on and there is a Watch and Act message saying prepare to evacuate. If anything changes, we'll let you know about that uh, as well. Uh, Peter in Mildura says livestock agents, uh, real estate agents, three quarters of them are not very trustworthy, says Peter in Mildura. And I may have changed slightly some of your text 
on you there, Peter. Uh, thank you for that all the same. Keep it coming in. We'd love to hear more from you as the afternoon goes on. Let's let's hear about an important meeting with the Agriculture Minister right now. Leading grain grower representatives have met with the State Agriculture Minister, Ros Spence, in the hope of building better twi- ties between farmers and the state government. The meeting comes amid concerns about diminished advocacy for farmers at, at the state government level because of the infighting that has gripped the Victorian Farmers Federation in recent months. So grain growers went it alone and got their own meeting. And Angus Verley spoke with VFF Grains Grow Vice President Ryan Milgate, who attended that meeting along with President Craig Henderson. We were just wanting to build a rapport and a relationship there with government and with the ag minister and and the and the um, parliamentary secretary and we just want to you know sit down and have a chat and introduce ourselves essentially and um just you know get to know each other a bit so you sought the meeting was it pr- pretty straightforward in getting one uh yeah it was reasonably straightforward when you go through the right channels and obviously it helps to know certain people around the place but um yeah, yeah, look, not, not certainly not impossible or anything like that by any means. What sorts of things did you talk about? We chatted about all things sort of, you know, grain farming in Victoria, really. We just had a good chat about, you know, what the landscape looks like, you know, some of the issues and challenges we see and, um, you know, where maybe, you know, things where we could work together in the future or, you know, help understand each other's position around certain issues. Uh, on on specifics, Ryan, I, I did note that the Ag Minister was Parliamentary Secretary for, for Roads or Roads Infrastructure from 2016 to 2020. Um, I'm imagining that the state of uh, Victoria's road network came up. Uh, my word, it did, yeah, absolutely. We, we flagged that, Angus. Um, like I said, we didn't labour on any one point very hard, but it was certainly a topic that we brought up and and sort of had a discussion briefly about, yeah. And in general, across the topics that you did cover, did you were you happy with the hearing that you got? Yeah, look, absolutely. Yeah, we just wanted to, um, you know, start a relationship. And um, look, we just want to be, obviously, we need to talk to government on all sorts of issues. And it's no different to any relationship, professional or personal, that, that you have in life. I think if you can, um, you know, get to understand each other and... and um, you know, work together, it's it's certainly a lot easier when we do have issues or want to ask questions if we sort of, you know, know each other and have some context behind it all to start with. And did you get a sense of how uh, tuned into agriculture and grain growing and some of the issues you're confronting that the, the Minister is? Look, I think, um, I think they've got a, a, a broad understanding, but, um, you know, obviously we, we sort of covered, you know, how we do certain things in our operation and what, you know, what our farms look like a bit. And um, certainly we don't expect them to have an intimate knowledge of that. But, you know, that's the whole idea of meeting up is just to say, you know, if you've got questions or you want to see, you know, how it's done or, you know, we're, we're here and the invitation's there to come and come and have a look around, kick the dirt, understand implications of, you know, all sorts of facets of the business and where it all fits in. And just as a minimum, Ryan, do you just in general want want the ag minister and the government before before doing things or making decisions that that affect farmers just to be talking to you first? Yeah, absolutely. We just want to be having a constant conversation around everything, you know. We and just 
I think, um, like I said, with any any sort of relationship, professional or personal, I think if you keep those lines open and and um, you can just keep constant dialogue, you know, you can flag certain issues that are not a problem at the time, but you know, just sort of build the build the conversation, the understanding between each other as time rolls on. Of course, uh, yesterday you would have had to depart the the VFF AGM early to to get to this meeting, but. Uh, I mean, there was some commentary in that meeting about the standing of the VFF at the moment with with the infighting that's happening and the potential damage that that infighting could be doing to the organisation standing with the government. Uh, I mean, is that an issue at the moment? If the VFF could the VFF be losing credibility in the eyes of the state government? Oh, look, I guess if we're spending time arguing amongst ourselves, we're probably not spending time and investing into these relationships so yeah I, I can't see it being super helpful and that's why we feel we just sort of get the eye back on the ball and um let's go and do what we're actually supposed to be doing and develop some relationships and and get the conversation going and the ag portfolio of course it, it's been well a, a bit of a case of musical chairs i guess right throughout the terms of, of this labor government are you hoping uh, for the sake of agriculture, that, that you're going to get some continuity and that Ros Spence is going to uh, stay in the role uh, longer term? Yeah, look, obviously we'd love to see that. And look, from our perspective, Ros showed a really genuine interest in in who we are and what we do. And Michaela Settle, the Parliamentary Secretary, and look, they were genuinely interested and, and we had a great chat. So... Hopefully they can hang around and, yeah, we can just keep building on that. I know in the past, Ryan, you've asked uh, representatives from the state government, but this is back on, on the condition of the roads, to to come up and meet with you and go for a drive in your truck and see firsthand uh, all the various issues with the roads. Uh, any chance that Ros Spencer's coming for a truck ride? I didn't hit her up for that, Angus. I thought um, we'll just get to know each other first, but uh, if Ros would love to come for a drive, I would be more than happy to take her. The invitation I've got stands for anyone, to be honest, but I didn't um, I didn't go too hard on that straight away. And Ryan, as to where to from here, uh, have you got any commitment for a regular meeting or, or an open line of communication? Oh, look, I think um, there's certainly no commitments or anything like that. But like I said, we, we put faces to names and we, we had a really good chat. So hopefully we can build on that in the future, but certainly didn't... Um, haven't put anything in concrete or anything like that, but we've got Michaela Settle coming to our Grains Conference next week, so that'll help build that relationship there, and hopefully we can just move on with that. I think that Grains Conference is around the corner from Angus Fairley's house, so we'll send him along to report for you on that next week as well. Ryan Milgate, their Vice President of the VFF Grains Group, having a chat to Angus Fairley about what they want from Victoria's Agriculture Minister, relatively new Agriculture Minister. We'll hope to have a chat to her sometime soon on the country hour. That door is always open. And plus, I'd love to go on that drive too to check out Victoria's Roads with Ryan Milgate. And we've talked about doing a country hour from that in the past. But ironically, I don't think the phone service is good enough to hold up a country hour broadcast whilst we look at the poor state of the roads. Read into that what you will. It is 26 
past 12 here on the Country Hour. Let's talk about the state of waterways right now. Gob Murray Water is urging farmers near Swan Hill, Kerrang and Kahuna to avoid water bodies with high detected levels of blue-green algae. It's uh, the bacteria which uh, can hurt, be harmful to humans, animals and livestock. So GMW Water Quality Coordinator Bianca Atley says rivers and lakes in the Turumbury irrigation area have been affected and should be avoided. Blue-green algae warnings have been issued for numerous locations in the Turumbury irrigation area. Gow Swamp near Leechville initially had high levels, which has also caused issues for the two large channel systems that are sourced from there. These large channel systems are actually connected to the Loddon River at Kerrang, which has caused a warning in the Loddon River from Kerrang to the confluence of the Little Murray River and also in Reedy and Little Lakes. We also have blue-green algae warnings in number one and number two lagoons and gum lagoon, but they those are not related to the cow swamp warning. What does this finding mean for local producers in particular? Um, because you mentioned the algae is toxic to both humans and animals. So blue-green algae contain toxins and people who come into contact with the water can experience symptoms. Those symptoms might be skin rashes, itchiness, sore eyes, ears, ears or nose, asthma, um, even numbness of, of the lips, nausea and vomiting and diarrhoea. We are advising people not to contact the water or drink untreated water from the locations that have warnings. Pets and animals can also be affected by blue-green algae and their symptoms are very similar to what you see in humans. We advise that stock should be kept away from recently irrigated areas and that the watering of the edible parts of garden plants should be avoided, so like the fruits and vegetables. And does that also mean that local farmers should, you know, find alternative water supplies for their stock and things like that? The best way to avoid having a blue-green algae issue is to use water that is not affected by the warning. So seeking an alternative supply for your stock and pets where possible. If people do come in contact with the water, it's really just a matter of washing themselves and their animals immediately. But are there any other measures that they should take? Like, do they have to go see a doctor or...? So when people come into contact with blue-green algae, they can have differing reactions to blue-green algae. The longer that the algae are on their skin, the more likely they are to get a reaction though. So the best thing to do is to wash it as soon as you can when you come into contact with the water and to not use hot water. So the blue-green algae toxins are actually released when they are... Uh, when you use hot water, when you burst the cells open. So the best thing to do is to use cold water to wash algae off with you. And also to know that the um, worst symptoms you get is when you actually ingest the water. So people should not be drinking any water that is untreated from from Goblin Murray water and that they should also realise that symptoms may not be immediate and can take a few days to appear. So if they have ingested the water or they experience other symptoms from the contact of the water that they should seek medical attention. That's Gold Murray Water Water Quality Coordinator Bianca Atley speaking with Faith Tabaluyan there. You're listening to The Country Hour. Let's get some rural news. Emma Field has that plenty of rural news today for you. After that, we'll have the full weather report, which is very important in a day like today. But first, Emma, take it away. Good afternoon. G'day, Warwick. Let's start rural news with rice blast, the most devastating rice disease in the world, which was detected in rice crops near Lismore in northern New South Wales on the 10th of February this year. But it's been revealed that rice growers in the northern rivers weren't told about the disease being detected in the region 10 years earlier. 
Greens MP and rice grower herself, Sue Higginson, questioned New South Wales Agriculture Minister Tara Moriarty about the latest outbreak and the previous detection a decade ago in New South Wales budget estimates yesterday. Minister, are you aware that there is a blast outbreak in the Northern Rivers? Uh, Yes, I am. And that it's affecting the rice industry in the Northern Rivers? Yes, I am. Um, Are you aware that DPI or, or one of the government agencies was aware that blast was present in the Northern Rivers some a decade ago and that perhaps that information was never disclosed to any rice growers in the Northern Rivers at the start-up of that sector development? Uh, look, I, I don't know what was uh, information was available or not 10 years ago. Obviously, I wasn't the <coughs> minister um, at that time. Uh, if there is uh, an allegation that you're putting, I'm happy to uh, check the details, uh, ask the department. Of course, you have the department here who may be able to answer. Um, I'm not, I, I take the question seriously. I'm not aware of, of information from 10 years ago. Do you but think I it's a very serious issue? Well, I'm happy to check if, the, if that's... Oh, if, of course. Queensland fruit and vegetable growers say farmers need a pay rise this year or many will be forced out of the industry. There has been a lot of attention on supermarkets and price gouging recently. Four Corners on Monday revealed the tactics being used by supermarkets to keep the price of food high for consumers while keeping the price paid to farmers low. Queensland fruit and vegetable Growers CEO Rachel Chambers says while the farm gate price needs to increase, the price for shoppers also needs to come down. Growers need to be paid for their cost of production and their real cost of production with real things going into that, um, including their salary. <laughs> like growers can no longer just just think, oh, you know what, I'm going to have a, you know, I'm going to make profit maybe once every three years. So, you know, I might take a return then. That needs to be part of how we price stuff. I also don't want um, growers' increases to be at the expense of consumers. It's not a one or the other. It has to both be done together. And a distillery in northern New South Wales is voicing their upset around the labelling of alcohol. The TV report took a look at growing the growing dominance of the major retailers with one of the areas where the duopoly is gaining market power being private labelled alcohol. That practice includes taking spirits like gin and branding it similar to a boutique label. Steve Dobson owns and operates Dobson's, Dobson's Distillery at Kentucky in New South Wales and he says there needs to be more truth in labelling. I'm sort of disgusted because they say that they advocate for Australian producers but the reality is they're only taking the most profitable parts of the market because they sell it as though it's made by a craft producer um, for instance, their spirits are marketed as though they're made in Tasmania and the Pure Origin uh, brand looks like a, a, a craft brand, but the reality is it's made in a factory and it's not of the quality that they um, are pretending to be. If they undercut the, the craft producers, the artisan producers, they're taking some of that demand away. And WA Liberal MP Rick Wilson says the live export industry regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, made a mistake when it approved the MV Bahaja's first export plan to Israel. The livestock vessel originally departed Australia for the Middle East on the 5th of January before it was ordered to return amid security concerns in the Red Sea. It's been a little over a week since the last of the 16,000 cattle and sheep were finally offloaded at Fremantle. 
Now, with the benefit of hindsight, Liberal MP Rick Wilson says the journey should have never happened. I thought it was bungled from day one. I still can't believe that an export permit was actually issued to an Israeli boat uh, with an Israeli uh, consignment of, of livestock, or it was consignment of livestock for Israel to sail through the Red Sea where the Houthi rebels are attacking ships of nations that they consider unfriendly. And of course, Israel sits very much at the top of that particular pyramid. Um, the fact that the Department of Agriculture, and I, I deal with exporters all the time, I, uh, you know, they have to have every I dotted, every T crossed in terms of having a secondary market or a, a contingency market so that if their first market for some reason won't accept the stock, they can, they can then deliver those sheep to the second market. In this case, uh, the second market had been put down as Kuwait. Kuwait were never going to receive sheep from an Israeli uh, boat at this time. And a researcher is using a half a million dollar grant to try and halve the time it takes Tasmanian farmers to grow pyrethrum. Farmers who grow pyrethrum, which is a lucrative crop normally used for natural insecticides, usually have to wait 18 months before the flowers are ready. Dr Tamika Pierce is using the $500,000 scholarship to try and work out how it can be grown in half the time. The industry have an aim to decrease that to about 10 to 12 months. So nearly half. And that has big implications for growers. It means that they have less amount of time to control disease and weeds, which can be problematic, but also allows them to grow an extra crop in the time when they would usually have pyrethrum in the ground. And that wraps up Rural News. Thank you very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News. Let's go to the Weather Bureau and find out how this weather is developing, particularly today of all days, where there is some pretty bad fire weather out there. Christy Johnson has those details from the Weather Bureau. G'day, Christy. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking so far today? Well, as expected, hot, windy. Um, obviously, we've seen at least one fire develop. There's actually been a few, but uh, the one that's reached um, that uh, emergency warning level, um, very difficult to control in these conditions with extreme fire danger through all six western and central districts and total fire bans for all of those districts as well. Uh, we have seen wind gusts up to, well, we've actually seen them up over 90 kilometres an hour at Mount William, uh, up in the Grampians, but mostly they've been sort of up around the 70 to 80 kilometre an hour mark and um, it, they will continue to be strong uh, for the rest of the day and then quite gusty on the change as well. We haven't seen any uh, thunderstorm activity yet, but we would expect it to be mostly more into the second half of the afternoon and then through the evening so we'll be continuing to watch for that. It does look like the cool change might have just reached the southwest coast. So Portland's dropped down to 24 degrees and uh, Warrnambool's starting to drop. It's just dropped to 30. So um, I think it's moving through there as well. So it is coming, uh, but it will look like at this stage it'll move through um, the southwest this afternoon, probably coming up the surf coast around about uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, and uh, and then sort of Geelong around 5, Melbourne and Ballarat probably somewhere around 6, 6.30, up, up to Horsham maybe a little bit later, uh, 7 o'clock-ish, and then moving through sort of Mildura closer to 9pm, Bendigo, similar sort of timing, similar probably out at somewhere like East Sale as well. It is a little bit tricky up in the northwest because there is a prefrontal trough, so the winds will swing around to the west ahead of the main cool change, uh, which is more of a southwesterly change. So 
bit tricky up there, but uh, yeah, those are the sorts of timings we're expecting. Um, thunderstorm activity most likely to be near the change, so as I say, more into the later afternoon and evening, and the most likely places to see that are probably through the central and north central districts. Um, and then maybe in the overnight period, we might actually start to see an upper system catch up to this trough and give it a bit of a boost overnight. So we could see elevated storms continuing uh, into, through the overnight period through central and eastern parts of the state. So um, look, a, a bit to come, but uh, at least those storms don't look like they're going to pack anywhere near the punch of the storms that we saw last week. They'll be a lot more isolated and uh, not so much in the way of rainfall with them, a lot of it evaporating before it reaches the ground, so just low rainfall totals or maybe even some dry lightning, which, of course, brings its own problems. Um, but, uh, yeah, probably wind is probably the more likely um, sort of... Uh, hazard with these thunderstorms, they could produce some pretty gusty winds. Yeah, yeah, the the wind obviously a huge concern on a on a hot day like today. And just how quickly really is is that change, as you say, hitting the southwest coast right now? How quickly will that spread really across the across the entire state? Yeah, so as I say, probably um, reaching say sort of the surf coast, Hamilton um, around about three o'clock, uh, sort of Horsham. Um, around about maybe around 7-ish, Bendigo around about 9 o'clock, um, up towards Shepparton probably by about midnight and then through Gippsland probably sort of east Dale around about 9 o'clock and then maybe getting close to Orbos sort of midnight or just after midnight. Um, so that's the sort of timing we're expecting. It will race along the coast faster than it will move through the inland parts and it will have more punch as it comes through the coast too. So there are some locations in the coast particularly when it's coming through at the really hot part of the day where we could see the temperatures dropping by 15 degrees in half an hour or 15 minutes even, um, whereas as it comes through the north, it will probably not be quite as dramatic a change uh, and not moving quite as quickly. And does it bring with it a significant shift in the wind direction? I'm just thinking with all those fires burning, that brings its own concerns, doesn't it? It definitely does. So obviously we're watching really closely for, for the fire Um Activity and we do do um, sort of forecasts for particular fires with hourly positions of the wind because it is that's actually one of the biggest hazards of fighting fires is when the wind changes suddenly. Um, so yes, look, it will be quite a strong wind change um, over southern Victoria. It'll go from a, a northerly or north northwesterly uh, right round to a southwesterly or even a southerly um, in some areas. Through the north, as I said, it'll be a bit more of a gentle change with more of a, a change to the west as the trough comes through and then a bit more moving around to the southwest, but it won't be quite as sharp um, through the north. But it will still be a significant wind change and uh, we're definitely working with the, the fire agencies to keep them updated on, on the wind directions. And I suppose then we, we should lift our eyes to, to later in the week, Christy. Yeah. What's, it, what's it look like once we get beyond today and into the weekend? Yeah, so the good news is it really uh, becomes a lot more settled as we move forward. Uh, tomorrow is significantly cooler. Um, I guess it's, it's still warmish up in the northeast where the, the trough will take a little while to finally clear, 29 for Albury, Wodonga, but most of the state looking at uh, the low 20s or low to mid 20s for maximum temperatures tomorrow, maybe even 19 at Warrnambool and Ballarat. Um, we, we will see some showers, so we'll probably see some showers and thunderstorms over the eastern half of the state in the morning, probably by late morning mostly, that that thunderstorm activity will have contracted to the eastern ranges. And there is the chance of some severe storms in the far eastern ranges tomorrow. 
Um, but elsewhere, just some isolated showers in the south, probably tending to ease during the afternoon, so not too much left by the end of the day. And then Saturday, maybe the odd drizzle patch or light shower in the south in the morning, but then probably a mostly fine afternoon. Um, temperatures generally in the low 20s in the south, high 20s in the north. Sunday looking fine and probably plenty of sunshine. Uh, temperatures in the low to mid 20s in the south, high 20s or low 30s in the north. Monday slightly cooler in the south as a front slides across Tassie, uh, but really barely anything in terms of rainfall reaching us, maybe a little bit near the coast. And then warming up Tuesday, uh, looking pretty much dry, and Wednesday looking warm as well, although Wednesday could be our next change day, so the temperatures on Wednesday will depend on the exact timing of the next change. But um, much more settled, fire dangers much more suppressed. We'll see uh, high fire dangers, not extreme, but high in some districts tomorrow with just some of the winds driving that. So it'll be cooler, but it'll still be windy in the southwesterly winds. So that could have some impact on the fires that may start today. Um, but then much more settled fire weather conditions uh, potentially through until maybe that next change day, next Wednesday. And not a lot of rain then in the forecast. I know I've had a couple of questions in over recent days that we haven't been able to uh, to, to put to you because there's been so much else going on, but not a lot of rain in the forecast? There's really not. I guess the best chance of rainfall is probably with uh, over the eastern half of the state's um, during the early hours of tomorrow, the, during the morning tomorrow, uh, where if we do see some thunderstorms, there is the potential for isolated falls of, of up to 20 or 25 millimetres with a thunderstorm. But really, in general, I think most people would be less than five millimetres. And that is probably most of the rainfall that we'll, we'll see for the, for the next week. Maybe the odd spit and bit of drizzle around that gives less than a millimetre. But um, yeah, that's probably the only significant rainfall is tomorrow morning. Well, thank you very much for us uh, allowing us to try and get as much information out of you as we possibly can on a day like today, Christy Johnson. It's greatly appreciated. No problem. Thanks, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology taking you through the full forecast there and really interesting detail on the winds for you too. Remember, if you have a question, you can send us a text 0467 842 722. Try and get it in before we get to the weather cross and that gives me enough time to see it and then put it to the Bureau on your behalf uh, any day in the country. I welcome that kind of question coming in, 0467 842 722. Some more information just on that Watch and Act fire, which is out in the Bay and Dean, Buanga, Glenlogie, Middle Creek, Mount Cole, Mount Lonark, Raglan area at the moment that we've been talking about this afternoon on uh, Rocky Road in Warwick. Uh, the CFA have told us 17 units responding to that fire in Rocky Road in Warwick. Uh, they've been there since about 10.24am when that fire was first uh, reported. The units are from really the local area. The watch and access has been issued and air support has been requested, the incident ongoing, but at least 17 CFA units fighting that fire as we speak. If anything changes, we'll bring it to you. On the text line, just before we go to our next story, we were speaking earlier in the program about uh, possible forged pedigrees from elders in their live exports of uh, particularly lucrative animals going to countries like China to help with dairy breeding herds and etc. The journalist involved in that case, Ed Gannon, joined you to tell you exactly uh, what he knows and what he doesn't know and what questions still remain in terms of this, this case that was investigated internally in elders about these possible forged pedigrees. Uh, Farmer Joe says plenty of dairy cattle had pedigree changed to meet export protocols. Uh, Joe, if you ever have any information on that, you know what you can do. Countryhour at abc.net.au is our email. Drop it to me at the ABC uh, offices in Shepparton. 
I'd be interested to see what information you have. Stu says, just another example of corporate greed. And Brian says, lucrative maybe, but unbelievably short-sighted. We all know that China will dump, dump Australian products as quick as looking at it, says Brian as well. You can keep those texts coming if you'd like, 0467 842 to get in contact with us here on the Country Hour. Let's go to the ports. Not for live exports, though. We'll talk containers. The cost of containers may go up as a result of the new wages agreement between port workers and large stevedoring company DP World. Dubai ports manage 40% of container traffic in Australia, and the dispute with workers was causing significant delays over recent months. Professor Vin Tai teaches logistics and port operations at RMIT University in Melbourne and told David Clawton, this new agreement between the company and its workers still needs to be signed by both parties, but things are getting back to normal at the ports. It could drive up prices. When we say back to normal, that means uh, there'll be no further hiccup uh, unless there's something else uh, happening, that which we don't know. But the um, um, delay in the clearance of the containers in the port have been easing out. Uh, not yet completely out yet, but it will be in the next couple of weeks or so. That's, that's according to my calculation. And in terms of the, 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 what the workers have won, uh, I'm hearing it was sort of bringing them up to what other players in the industry are paying. So uh, that will be like Patrick's, for example. But what implications do you think it will, will have that they've, that they've agreed to pay workers more? I think it's for business, it's all go back to the basic equation between revenue, cost, and uh, profit. So apparently from the poor perspective, uh, they agree to pay higher. That means the cost will be going up for them. And if they still want to maintain the same profit margin that they've been uh, enjoying so far, what that means is the revenue part will need to be increased as well. And that means the um, increase in the prices of the pork-related services would then translate into the higher costs for other uh, port customers and eventually the end users. However, if the uh, employer, the, uh, I mean the port in this case, um, uh, in, in a way decide to keep the profit margin uh, at the manageable level uh, and, and do not want to pass on the cost to the, the other end users, then that would be a good news. Right, but uh, DP World have only recently increased their, their port service charges significantly, haven't they? We've heard from uh, the Freight Alliance that the charges have gone up in at the end of January by about you know, more than 50%. Yeah, that's right, yep. So you think they might go up again? Oh, well, my prediction is that uh, in view of the recent increase, um, there will not likely to be a sudden increase in the very near future. However, in the medium and long term, we cannot uh, exclude that possibility from happening. Are they making excessive profits? Because we have heard this from some of the regulators, haven't we? They think that the, the and, they, and these two companies, DP World and, and and Patrick's, control about forty percent each of the traffic. So it's a they've got a a bit like the supermarkets. They've got a duopoly happening there, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. That is the uh, basically, you know, the features of the Australian port system. Uh, first of all, let's take one step back and say that, you know, um, majority of our household commodities are imported in containers from overseas. We don't have a so-called um, national fleet uh, in a way to uh, to be in a very proactive position to control the maritime supply chain, especially the import into the country. 
and uh, we don't have the land border. That means we rely heavily onto the port system uh, for our daily life essentials. Um, so if uh, DP World decide to give you know, the same profit margin that they have been enjoying so far, uh, definitely, you know, from the business perspective, what does it mean is they would need to pass on the the cost increase to somebody else. And what does it mean is the populated services will be uh, will be priced a little bit higher, and then eventually translated into the end user at the supermarket. That is Professor Vin Tai from RMIT speaking there to David Clawton. He's also uh, the founder of the Australian Maritime Logistics Research Network, that being Professor Vintai, not our reporter there, They're speaking about the situation with DP World and their increased prices through Melbourne ports, but also their agreement with port workers too. You can get in contact if you have any further information or questions you'd like us to ask on your behalf. Hey, some, some breaking news today too. Uh, let's talk about the profits being made, or the revenue certainly being made, by a major dairy company in Australia. This has just been happening whilst we've been going to air today. Cheese producer Bega Cheese has reported $1.7 billion in revenue for the first half of 2024, a 3% increase on the same period last year. The company's share prices shot up 12% in response to that announcement. So the company says it's managed to pay down almost $70 million in debt after it sold property in Port Melbourne and Canberra and also sold off the interest it had in joint venture with Vitasoy. In a presentation to shareholders today, CEO Peter Finlay from Bega Cheese reported a 20% increase in earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation, uh, EBITDA, uh, easy a bit to say, compared to the first half of 2023. He said commodity prices had helped improve the company's results. We are seeing a slight return um, of commodity prices. That's really based around, um, it's really been supply-led at this stage. So supply reduction of Europe, supply reduction of supply being turned off out of the US, which has brought back um, some, some strength in the commodity market. So it's not demand-led yet. How we feel that as demand starts to pick up, that could actually accelerate commodity prices further. That is uh, Bega Cheese CEO speaking about that. I'm sure you'll hear more about that in the coming days as uh, we learn more, we will let you know more. Just a couple to get to. We'll start in Wagga with the lambs there and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. With numbers declining across all selling centres in New South Wales and Victoria, buyers found themselves compelled to increase bidding at Wagga. There was 38,000 lambs and 12,000 sheep offered. The standout of the auction was the mutton category, which a few thousand sold early and prices $20 to $30 dearer to the previous sale. In the lamb sale, trade lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilo experienced an uptick of four to five dollars, fetching 118 to 160. Lambs weighing 24 to 26 kilos ranged from 160 to 174. In the heavy export category, prices lifted seven to eleven dollars, with sales ranging from 172 to 240, and averaging around 658 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lamb fetched prices between 50 to 125, and those suitable to feed on reached. 135. Heavy mutton sale was robust with prices spanning anywhere from $90 to $131.
the remainder of the mutton yet to begin. I'm Leanne Dux for MLA. To Hamilton and Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Today, Hamilton agents offered 6,350 sheep, being slightly less than the previous market. Another good uh, offering of trade weight sheep were available, along with less heavyweight sheep. The majority of the sheep being crossbred ewes, merino ewes representing about 30% of the offering. Were all, not all the processes were present, and those that were present were not always fully active. However, the market was very strong and dearer by 25 to $30 per head and more in places over most categories, with the very light sheep being most affected. The general run of mutton to average between 280 and 340 with the very light sheep realising from 345 to 400 cents. Crossbred ewes sold to $115 per head, well-covered merino ewes selling to 104 and the merino weathers to $112. Hoggets topped out at $110 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. That's all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Stay safe if you're in the, in the area of that Warwick fire. We'll keep you updated on ABC as the afternoon unfolds.